This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. You're stuck with us now until 12, so if you don't like science, you might want to run screaming from the room because you're about to get an hour of it. In the studio with me is Dr. Catherine. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very pleased to be here. And sitting next to you is someone who's wearing a uh, scarf of a particular team's colours, Dr. Ailey. Woof, woof, woof. That's all I have to say. Fourth generation Bulldog supporter right here, so I am one very, very happy person today. She's still drunk, folks. Uh, but we'll try and get some sense out of her. Uh, a huge congratulations to the uh, Western Bulldogs and to all their supporters. I grew up in that neck of the woods myself, so uh, have some sympathy. Great day. Great yeah. day. Yeah. It's been a long time between drinks. A long time. My <laughs> father was four at the last <laughs> premiership win, so oh, it says a lot. Anyway, it's enough about four. Yeah, yeah. We won't talk about four. It's a science show. Uh, now, we do have a big show. We've got a, a couple of great guests coming on a little bit later, but we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Catherine, what have you got for us? Dr. Shen, I have some really interesting research that has come out of Penn State uh, and, and research that was published in the journal Psychological Science very recently. And it's looking at how puberty actually changes your facial recognition ability. Oh. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Oh, that's surprising. So, <laughs> so, I mean, if you... Yeah, I, I remember her now. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I've hit puberty, somehow she's important to me. Is that... Is that yeah. Is it, that what's going on? That's exactly right. Sorry, so if you I jumped ahead. If you... If you you think about someone's face and how much information you actually rely on your face personality um, emotions age health and how we actually interpret and analyze that information by viewing someone's face actually changes as you develop from right. a, from a newborn to being much older and originally it was thought that maybe it was your age that changes facial recognition but in fact the researchers um, in, in this study have have challenged that and in fact it, it's it's pubertal status that has actually changes so what they did in this study they included 160 16 adolescents and people of all exactly the same age but four different stages of puberty and then they asked those adolescents to view lots of photographs of people of, of different um, different ages males and females and of different the people that they were watching with different pubertal status as well and then they asked them to look at those photos again and see who they could recall and remember and using computerized sort of technology to look at facial recognition very accurately and there are a few really interesting results. The first one was that the people who were before puberty actually had a tendency to recognise older females. So, and the researchers call this um, carer bias. So okay. their, their bias was to remember faces of older yep. females. Okay. Whereas as you go through puberty or afterwards, the bias um, comes back to people of your own age. So it's mm. their appear bias. Production females. Maybe. No, exactly. How would you, what, puberty, how would you turn right. them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's so we, we we know that adolescents actually develop friendship groups around people yep. of their own pubertal status rather than age, and maybe this this in some way sort of informs that that you're you know you, you remember faces and, and take a lot more information on the people that are at sort of the same same development as you, regardless of mm. what age exactly that is. Mm. And we, I mean, we must develop um, facial recognition very early, like days out of the womb kind of stuff, right? I mean, we we recognize those faces and sounds very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. But how we actually interpret that information on the yeah. face of someone's happy, if sad, uh, it, those sort of emotions, I think, develop slowly over time. Have you always worn glasses? No, I haven't. No. 
I'm on fire today. <laughs> I'm recognising all sorts of stuff. You know, yes. During the week, I noticed there was a lady at my work and she'd had a haircut. And I, mind you, my wife has beaten me senseless into recognising this whenever shit happens with her. But, um, but you, you don't, you, you often don't pick these things up. You don't, um, you no. don't notice them. And, and that, when you're taking on all of the information around yeah. you as well and what's happening, yeah. uh, to to actually focus on someone's face. Yeah, it's interesting to know if it'd be something to do with kind of that emotional maturity or, or something like that as well. Like, is there that kind of, you know, deal? Yeah, dealing yeah. with. Mm. Says says the woman who got who's got yeah. blue, blue fingernails. And, and you're absolutely spot on. And, and the, the hypothesis is around hormonal changes, but yeah. it's also developing that person ready for adulthood yeah. and yeah. taking in that social yeah. information. So I think yeah. I think you're spot on. Interesting yeah. stuff. Uh, I should uh, just uh, for a few people out there who are freaking out right now, Daylight Savings has started. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're expecting a different program, sorry, but you've got to reset your watch. You know, I worked out yesterday that Daylight Savings now runs for half of the year. Yeah, it does. Mm. I mean. I'm going to have to repaint my house more often. <laughs> oh, well, because your paint's fading. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do love it when it comes to this yeah. time of year, though, because it feels like summer's so close, so close to us. Unless you so walk close. outside. So far, exactly. In which case you go, what the hell yeah, is this? feels right. like winter. winter. I planted some tomatoes over the weekend mm. because we've reached the point where I plant my tomatoes. And it's very scientifically based. If there are seven consecutive days when the temperature is not below 10 degrees overnight, mm-hmm. they're in. That's how I work it out. What and, happens uh, if the temperature is below 10 degrees after I rip after them back you? out. Yeah, rip them back out. Put, put, them, put them inside. Um, well, that, that has happened on yes. occasion. But, they can, you know, they die. If it gets too yeah. cold, they, yeah. they, they prematurely um, kill themselves. Yeah. Dr. Ailey, what do you got for us? I am in a very good mood. So I'm all about happy bees this morning. Oh, yes. Yes. So this was an, an article that was uh, published last week in the, uh, in the magazine Science, which is a very reputable science uh, journal. And this comes from people at the Queen Mary University of London who did some fun stuff with bees and found that they can show signs of primitive emotions. So happy bees. This was pretty cool. Um, so this, what they did was basically they trained 35 bees. Apparently bees are very trainable. I didn't know this. So they, they trained them to zoom around these little mazes and, and things like that. And what they did was they put a little treat at one end of the maze. And then at the kind of uh, entry or one of the tunnels where the treat was, they would put either they would put blue flowers mm-hmm. along along that track. If there were if there was a reward at the end, they would put blue. So the bees would learn to recognise blue flowers equals reward. Let's go down that path. In another maze, they would then put green flowers, but there was no reward at the end of that. So blue equaled good reward, exciting. Green equaled nothing, disappointment. Then what they did was that they they were quite mean, actually. They changed the flower colour to have a bluey-greeny oh. hue. <laughs> Bastards. <I know>. Yeah. <laughs> so is it blue, is it green? The bees got really, really confused. Mm. And so what they found was, though, if the bees, if they didn't do anything to the bees, the bees would just kind of hover around that tunnel and go, oh, is it? Is it blue? Not quite sure. No, no, I don't think it is. And the bees would move on. But if they gave the bees a little treat before going in, a sugary treat before going in, the bees were actually more optimistic and they were more likely to see that that flower was more blue than green than green than blue and they would be more likely to go down the tunnel and find the treat at the end. So giving them a little pre-reward would help them find that one at the end. But what, I, I read this study, and what, what I didn't understand was how did they associate, like how did they make the link between that 
and primitive emotion. I mean, to me, that yeah, could just be, emotion, I know. I you know, know, it could be the equivalent of changing blood pressure for us. So yes. it could be, there's all yes. these other things that sort no, of was, make it more likely to be more aggressive yep. in behaviour. Now, that's not necessarily emotional. Yes. There's all sorts of things that can make um, that's things true. more aggressive. They, or they, energy levels, maybe. Energy well, levels, they did actually yeah. look at that. So they did state in the study that the bees didn't necessarily fly any faster or at a different rate or anything like that. So they, they, they kind of, they, in their study, yeah. ruled out that it was energy levels weren't doing anything mm, okay. they put it down to some <coughs> sort of bee optimism mm. <laughs> I, well, I mean the one, the one thing say, we know you know if you if you if, you shouldn't do this folks but if you've ever tried to kill a bee a bee will be pissed off with you that, yeah. that, that we kind of know now is that i mean is that a emotion or is it just some sort of response like a stimuli yeah. response it's, hard, it's very it's hard, hard to, to know because mm. in this in this article i read they also talked about mm. another study which yeah pretty much did that they shook bees yeah <laughs> they, put them in shook a, they shook them to not so much as to hurt them but just enough to kind of piss them off and yeah. um and they showed these signs of yeah being a bit more pessimistic yeah. as well so but it could be i mean it, but again could it could be just a, be a biological response like you know like small, one study you know yeah. very, very sure. simple worms and that will sort yeah. of recoil when yeah. there's vibration there's yeah, all, for sure. Yeah, I think, all those no, survival totally. mechanisms yeah, to be yeah, able yeah, to yeah. But you know what? I'm in an optimistic mood, so I'm going to the optimistic <laughs> phase. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, one way to quench your optimism is that you may have to wait another 50 years before you... Yeah, yeah well, there. let's not talk about there that we so are. much. Now, uh, speaking of optimistic, uh, you know, what do you do when you're finished with a, a spacecraft? I mean, if you're a human, you just crash it into shit, right? I mean, mm, that's what we that's tend to do. That's the fun part, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be what we do. Um, but, you know, we've had the Rosetta spacecraft, which um, has been orbiting a, a comet for, for some years now, and there was the Philae lander, or as I call it, the Philae crasher, <laughs> yeah. um, that didn't... You know, but it got... I mean, it, it was, was interesting. One leg wasn't it well you know if you if you have uh, the way i like to think of that is they they landed this sucker on on the comet if you think of a football oval mm. perfectly smooth and then somewhere on that oval someone's pitched a tent yep. they managed to land it inside the tent where it couldn't get a, a source of power from yeah. solar radiation. Yeah. So, you know, the, the bad luck they had there was mm. just extraordinary because the images showing where it was mm. showed this sort of almost like an open field and this one boulder that it managed to squeeze itself under. It, it really was bad luck. So, But anyway, the, the mothership, the Rosetta, um, has come to the end of its mission and uh, just a couple of days ago now they decided to – well, they referred to it as a touchdown – I call it a slow-speed crash. <laughs> um, but it was interesting, actually, because they, they shut all the computers and everything down before they actually did it. And to be honest, I mean, don't get the wrong impression here. It wasn't like they drove it like you're on the freeway into a house kind of thing. It was more like walking speed, so it was a few kilometres per hour. It was a walking speed, and they, they sort of hit, hit the comet with that speed. So it'll be there for a while. But what it did do, of course, is um, get very, very close, closer than it was otherwise able to be without, you know, losing control and took some very close photos of the comet um, on its way in, which was kind of cool. So, you know, they didn't completely um, do it in a worthless sense. They they got as much data as they could. But I thought it was interesting. I mean, this, this has um, been one of those missions that I think a lot of people have watched for a long time mm. because of the, you know, the lost lander and, you know, oh, we found it again and you know, all this other stuff. But um, it's finally come to an end. So, um, yeah, you know, congratulations to the team who put it together. It was it was really uh, exciting seeing all this information on the comet over a protracted period of time. Are they planning to do any others on comets? <coughs> well, I think the, the next uh, the next big step is for uh, NASA are looking to actually put some boots on boots 
boots with, with humans in them. Wow. On a on not an just asteroid. Boots. No, not just boots. <laughs> um, yeah, I I'd just to clarify that. Um, you know, on an asteroid. So that as a precursor mission to um, to, to a Mars landing and so forth. So wow. there's there's still a lot happening there that's um, pretty cool, it's, I think. And, it's um, very Hollywood putting people on a, on a comet, isn't it? Yeah, Just not yeah. to save the Earth or yeah, whatever yeah. it was. Well, well, you know, all of these things are related, so, you yeah, know, the technology no, involved. And, and the, you know, it's interesting, there's been, a, there's been a lot of videos coming out over the last few days from Elon Musk and others with regards to his plans for, for Martian landings and so forth, which is, I mean, you know, great, I say. The more private industry there is doing this sort of work i mean i mean keeping in mind you know in the 50s and 60s most of the nasa a lot of nasa stuff actually was outsourced to companies you know that were aerospace engineering companies that were making planes and so forth they built the rockets they built all the components mm-hmm. so it's not as though there's this feeling at the moment that oh all of a sudden private private companies are involved it's like no they've, always, they've been. always been involved but they just haven't led the the show so i think i think if um, musk gets it going it'll be great but uh, the space launch system the sls which is the big rocket the monster that nasa are working on at the moment that will in, in my mind that will be the first one to get us to mars so that's pretty exciting stuff but anyway not on a windy day like this though folks uh, so if you're outside i tell you get back inside it is going to be a monster windy day i think today pretty pretty nasty so stay safe we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment we're going to be speaking with the new chief chief executive of the australian academy of science so hang around you're listening to three triple r three triple Uh, we're back. You're listening to Three Triple R, and uh, we do have a guest. Hopefully, on the phone, Anna Maria Arabia is the new chief executive of the Australian Academy of Science. Anna Maria, can you hear us? I can hear you. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for making the time on this uh, wild and windy Sunday. Now you're up in Canberra, aren't you? Uh, not quite yet. I'm, um, I'll be in Canberra when I start in the post on the 24th of October. Right. Okay. So you're not that. So you're in Melbourne. You probably. Even worse off. I am. Oh, well, <laughs> commiserations. Um, it's pretty windy down here. Now, tell us first, I mean, this is, um, this is a huge opportunity. I mean, being part of the Academy is a big deal. What is drawing you to move to such an amazing city like Canberra? <laughs> Look, it is an enormous um, privilege. I'm thrilled about, about the position and the opportunity to champion and support science. Uh, you know, for an organisation like the Academy, which represents excellence in Australian science, I think the opportunities are, are many and I'm, I'm relishing that. Um, that the Academy is uh, uh, located in Canberra, um, that's fine. I've um, lived in Canberra before and it is actually a tremendous city and, of, co- of course, it's very close to government departments and to mm. the parliament. And I think that's one of the important functions of the Academy to be able to advocate to yeah. parliamentarians, but not to forget um, the importance of speaking with the public and, you know, advocating science and the, uh, to, to society generally. It's not just parliamentarians who mm. are our audience. Now, I mean, on that, I, I suspect that a vast quantity of our listeners probably never even heard of the Australian Academy of Science because it's not something you hear about in the news or in you know, general conversation very often. I mean, what what is the role of the Academy? Can you give us a, a bit of a rundown? Yeah, of course. So um, the Academy, now it was founded in 1954 um, and it was, it, it was 
it has four main functions effectively and one is to champion and celebrate um, science and support excellence in Australia, um, to promote international engagement. There are enormous international science in, um, networks that the Academy is part of, to build public awareness of science and um, to provide a really authoritative and independent um, voice. You're right, Australians may not immediately think of the Australian Academy of Science and know what it does, but millions of Australians have accessed documents produced by the Australian mm. Academy of Science and some of those are, you know, authoritative scientific evidence based on why children should be immunised. Um, yep. uh, the science of climate change. Um, science education materials are widespread in nearly every primary school in the nation and they're produced by the Australian Academy of Science. So they may not have seen the logo, but they've probably interacted with the products and services and excellence that is the Australian Academy of Science. That, I mean, that's very interesting. And, and I think uh, when you bring up some of those examples, we, we have seen that. With regards to things like education, I mean, what sort of role do you play in terms of setting curriculum and things like that? I mean, is there a, an ongoing campaign there to get more science into the curriculum? Because it does seem to be lacking. So the Academy doesn't set the curriculum per se, but certainly is an influential voice in assisting the development of the curriculum. And as we know, we've been through the long process of developing the national curriculum over the past few years and implementing that in schools. There's been some changes with changes of government. So I think it's for the Academy to, one, make sure uh, that science is well reflected in those materials um, and also to uh, reflect the national curriculum and its requirements in the materials it produces for teachers so that teachers have the best possible resources so that they can keep inspiring kids to love science and continue in science in secondary and in university which is a problematic in Australia we kids mm. love science at primary school it's then continuing that passion um, going forward so uh, in that regard the academy has has a tremendous role um, and it's uh, the academy has 500 fellows um, and these are the cream of the crop of scientists in Australia they are uh, they represent excellence in their fields and each of those people bring their expertise and decades of experience uh, to uh, assisting um, in that science content, whether it's education materials or other activities that the Academy undertakes. Mm. Now, let's talk about your interactions with government from a, for a moment. How independent can you be in campaigning with government? Because, and I'll say this so you don't have to, um, I, I think at the moment we have a, a largely science ignoring um, feel in government. I mean, most of our listeners would probably be very critical of the the, the type of impact that science is having on decisions in, in government. I mean, what's what's the ability of the academy there to really you know, whack government over the head and say, hang on, this isn't made up, this is real stuff, this is actionable. What, what can you do? And I appreciate you could be in a difficult position answering that. No, no, there, there are many things that can be done, but two of the critical things that I think need to be done and are already happening but need to be ramped up and something that I will set as priorities as, as Chief Executive is uh, having government understand the importance of consulting the evidence base. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not naive. I know that government's decisions are based on a thousand factors, including yep. community sentiment, including politics, including economic um, considerations. However, it is quite standard for the government to make an economic assessment about an initiative quite standard for them to look at opinion polls. I would like it to be quite standard for the evidence base to be part of their considerations, aware
care that it won't always drive the decision, but at the very least, it should be a critical part of the decision-making. That's one. Then there is another area where I think Australia can do much better, and that's public understanding of science. So mums and dads, voters, are also putting pressure on government and saying, wait a minute, we want uh, policy that is... Uh, informed by the evidence base or that they have an understanding of the importance of science and the public good of science, its economic importance, its importance in having their children find jobs in the future, that sort of critical understanding of the role of science so that they start becoming an active voice in this debate and saying to government, hey, you need to step up step up here and do it better. And government does respond to the voters. In my experience, that's been um, that's been the case. Mm. Yeah, they, well, they certainly, certainly respond to the voters. I mean, Anna-Maria, that's really heartening to hear that you're going to do that because I think it's something that uh, is has has been lacking and, you know, putting a blowtorch to this and, and really making sure that these decisions are, are at least considering the evidence, yeah. hopefully being, you know, strongly influenced by them is a big thing. You, you mentioned earlier the information put out by the Academy on areas like vaccinations. It, it would seem to me, I mean, I refer to, to our, our sort of current state of play in that area as almost like unwinding progress. I mean, as a, as a former physicist, it would be like me convincing people to go back to using gas to light their homes rather than electricity. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think is happening there in, in, in our, our culture with regards to this sort of pushback against science that is now, you know, decades old? I think empty vessels sound the loudest, unfortunately. Mm. So often it's um, minority voices who have much more influence. And that's where I think, with concerted effort, the Academy of Science, with the stamp of excellence, quality, credibility and reputation that it brings, is able to produce documents like a Q&A on immunisation, which provides the evidence base. Government, we've seen, has responded with some state governments with policies um, of no jab, no pay. So mm. unless you are immunised, you, you can't access um, uh, particular payments or access to childcare. That's been at both federal and state governments. So that's a bit of a policy response to some of that, um, to that evidence base. So this, this is one example where it's worked. And in fact, the evidence is showing uh, that the declining immunisation rates are starting to pick up again. But sadly, um, the people who are willing and ready to undermine science will always have a very loud voice and it is for us to counter that both with information and with very clever communication tactics that people find accessible. I think throwing a lot of difficult to understand information at people does not necessarily work. We need to think creatively about how we communicate with the public about the importance of science and what it means for them from getting their children immunised to giving them the skills they need to have jobs in the future. You know, a range of things that impact their, their decisions every day, small and large decisions. Mm. Anna Maria, I think uh, yeah, it's fair to say that the science absolutely does not speak for itself in those contexts, which is one of the things we've often heard in the past. It, it's look, it, it's great that you're taking on this role. It sounds like you're you're really going to bring some some fresh ideas and and push some of this stuff in the right direction. Congratulations again, and thank you so much for speaking to us today on Triple R. Thanks ever so much. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, good luck with the role. That was Anna Maria Arabia, who's the new chief executive as of the 24th of October for the Australian Academy of Science. Hopefully you can push it uh, in the direction where we will get a lot more, as I, uh, I like the term, uh, test things against the anvil of experience.
That's deep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was in a TV show. I, like yeah. it. Uh, <clears throat> I heard it and I thought, yeah, I like that phrasing and use it again. But yeah. no, we, I mean, this really is about saying, hang mm. on, hang on, what do we know here? Yeah. What do we know? And, yeah. and not just ignoring the knowledge that has been built up over decades, which is what is happening a lot at the moment across the world. Particularly in areas of government. Oh, it's really yeah. frustrating that this evidence-based, you know, stuff is being ignored. It's, well, you know, as I say, you know, if, you, if you really want to test science, mm. um, test gravity first, I'll yeah. find you a building. Yeah. Um, <laughs> believe us on that. You should believe us on this too. Anyway, uh, we digress. Uh, we, we should get on with some music and we'll be back in a moment talking to uh, the clinical project manager of the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance, which is a very interesting program. Three, triple, ah. uh, you are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We're a science program in the studio. With us, we have Ali Lynch, who is the clinical program manager of the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. Ali, welcome to Three Triple R. Thank you very much for having me. Now, um, I'm just going to hold on a second. I'm going to move my mic so I can see you. Hold on, folks. This is going to take literally one second. How good was that? Was that good? Very good. Um, sorry, I, could, I couldn't see you behind these giant microphones. Um, now, you're um, well. You're a genetic counsellor by training or trade. I suppose you still do that. What, what, what does a genetic counsellor do? Is that like I find out my genes mean I'm going to be too tall and I get upset and I come and see you? Is that what does a genetic counsellor do? So the role I'm, being, of, I'm being rude. I know what it should be. Please tell us, tell us though. Of course. So the role of a genetic counsellor is to see individuals and families and really help them to understand and adapt to the genetic diagnosis mm. in their family. So my experience has predominantly been in the field of cancer genetics. Okay. Yep. So people who have a very strong family history of cancer or they themselves might have been diagnosed with cancer at a young age and they want to know whether that's something that's inherited in their family. Um, so, for example, when Angelina Jolie um, mm, yeah. underwent her preventative mastectomy, she would have seen a genetic counsellor who would have talked to her about genetic testing, um, facilitated that test for her and provided her with those results and support in following up with those results as well. I, I mean, I, I'm just fascinated how that conversation would go. I mean, you know, you, you've got a, a statistical chance of this happening to you. I mean, how do you advise on that? It just seems extraordinarily complex as a as a decision making process yeah it can be complex and i guess that the genetic um, concepts are quite complex as mm. well and so that's where the role of the genetic counselor is really important in trying to explain something that is quite complex in a way that somebody who has no understanding of genetics or science can understand and make a decision um, for themselves that really best suits them and their family mm. and i guess people are often influenced by what's happened in their family um if they've had a very bad experience with cancer in their family, then yep. that might influence their decision to undertake something like surgery. Um, if their experience has been something that's been more positive, then that might change their um, decision making. Is it worse when you get someone in who knows something about genetics? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Sometimes um, sometimes it's difficult when people think that they know quite a lot about right. genetics, um, but um, 
you know, perhaps um, aren't willing to understand or yeah. listen um, <clears throat> to what you need to say. But um, sometimes it can be easier because um, it's really you're then able to focus on the counselling and the decision-making rather than the explaining of the genetic right. information. Yep. Now, let's talk about the Genomics Alliance because this is just a few years old now. It started off as a pilot project. So don't we start there? What was the original idea behind pulling this group together and doing this? Yeah, so um, there were seven organisations based in Parkville that recognised that there were a lot of challenges in incorporating genomics into healthcare. So when when we talk about genetic testing compared to genomic testing, traditionally when we do genetic testing, we're testing one gene at a time or Mm -hmm. a panel of genes, a small number of genes. Whereas genomic testing is using this new technology called next generation sequencing, where basically we can sequence a person's whole genetic code, their whole genome, all at once. Um, and that has a lot of um, benefits, but there are also challenges around in, uh, incorporating that type of testing into healthcare. And so these organisations got together um in Parkville and contributed some funding to perform a demonstration project Mm -hmm. that was run over 2013 to 2015 and that was quite successful and then um, the state government contributed $25 million and there were um, new organisations that joined and we're now rolling out the next phase of the project. So so let's talk about the pilot project. I mean, when you say it was quite successful, what what exactly does that mean? What what did it do? So basically, um, approximately 300 Victorians were offered um, a type of testing called whole exome sequencing. Mm -hmm. So the exome is the coding part of the the genome. So that's about 2% of our genome, which codes for proteins. Makes proteins. Exactly right. Um, So approximately 300 patients from five diverse disease groups were offered this type of testing um, for different reasons. So um, some of the patients were children who had undiagnosed syndromes Mm -hmm. and they were offered this testing in order to find a diagnosis um, for their condition and that was um, quite successful. Okay, and it was more successful than just the standard processes. Very much so. I, I remember I was MC at an event down at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, I think sometime earlier last year, and one of the speakers, um, with great acclaim, said he diagnosed 200 students, uh, 200 um, children in 10 years. And I thought, well, what is that just on Mondays? It, it seemed like a very low number. But then when he went through and described the difficulty with this diagnostic odyssey these families were on, all of a sudden, 210 years seemed like a very large number and how difficult it was. I mean, this is the group you're talking about, isn't it? The ones where we can't, we don't know. That's right, yeah. And those are children with very rare diseases. And so historically, uh, when these children were offered testing, it would be one gene was tested, nothing mm. was found. You'd move on yeah. to the next gene, nothing was found, to move on to the next gene. And that was a very expensive and yeah. time-consuming process um, and really difficult for parents when they want to know um, what condition their child has and whether if they have more children other children might be affected by that same condition i I mean i mean to to put that in perspective last week we talked about some of the research new research that came out that has shown that seven thousand of your genes are affected when you smoke Mm. so i mean putting putting that in perspective of testing one gene at a time you think whoa (laughs) Uh, because there's some forty thousand genes or something yes yeah yeah about 
about that. Yeah. So that's going to take a while. Mm. One at a time. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to do that. So now you've you've got the new trench of funding from the state government, which is you know quite a, a big get. Yes. Um, what's the next step? Because obviously there are a lot more than three hundred people who could potentially benefit from this sort of technology. Yeah. So uh, in this current phase <laughs> of work, where offering this type of testing to a um, group of patients with another six different conditions. Mm -hmm. So um, those conditions are, um, two of them are treatment-based. So one is uh, high-risk lymphoma patients and patients with solid tumours. The other ones are patients with immune disorders, um, babies born with deafness, um, children with very complex medical needs, Mm -hmm. um, and... um, had a mental blank on you've, the last. You've done well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually was wondering whether you'd be able to repeat those six because I think it's, it's hard to remember all those. I mean, it's, it sounds like a, a quite a diverse group, and, and so that's the start. Is, is it something that? I mean, at what point are we going to have this as a standard procedure? Whenever you enter, say, a tertiary hospital or, or maybe even a, a GP clinic. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just remembered this last condition, oh, dilated go. cardiomyopathy, um, <laughs> <Well done. laughs> which is an inherited heart condition. So I guess that we know that this type of testing is not the right test for every patient. So mm. one of the aims of Melbourne Genomics is to work out really what's the right test for the right patient yep. at the right time. So, for example, if you're... De- Um, wanting to diagnose a patient with Huntington disease or needing to make a diagnosis, um, this type of testing is not the right testing because it's not very good in picking up um, these triplet repeat disorders, so these conditions that um, occur because of these triplet repeats. So it's not always the best test, and that's one Mm. of the things that we're looking at with Melbourne Genomics is when is this the right test. Mm. So in terms of access of, of patients with these conditions being able to access the testing, how expensive is it now? It sounds very complex. Mm. Is it something that the patients would need to pay themselves or what sort of amount of money are we looking at per patient? So the testing has actually gone down in price um, over recent years. Um, It's about... um, just over two thousand dollars to perform one of these tests. At the moment, for the um, for the participants in the study, that test is obviously being government funded um, through participation in the study. Um, but you know, we know that there is inequity to access to genetic testing across the country, and sometimes patients do have to pay for this testing. Mm. Look, it, it's. I mean, I've been closely watching this uh, from my my locale down there in Parkville, and it's it's something that's going very well. I think it's for those of us who know people with, you know, genetically based diseases that are, you know lifelong and so forth i think being able to sort those out and learn more it's just incredible now you have um you have something you wanted to spruik while you're here as well one of the programs that is happening yeah so i guess i just wanted to talk um mention the genie oz study which is aiming to get the general public's view on direct-to-consumer genetic testing oh yeah that old chestnut (laughs) that's right (laughs) online ordering as i call it yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. So yeah. I guess we're interested in what people's views are about this type of testing. You don't have to have any knowledge of genetics or science to complete the survey, but if people want to go to www.genioz, which is G-E-N-I-O-Z.net.au, it would be great if they could complete the survey. Mm. We'll pop that on our Facebook page. I mean, what's your thoughts on those um, online type things? It just seems a bit of a misadventure to me. Yeah, I guess I, as a genetic counsellor, I have some concern about right. people accessing this type of testing. Um, one thing that concerns me also is what these commercial companies are doing with 
this person's yeah. data. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that Melbourne Genomics is focusing on, really, is um, building a central Victorian repository for data because we know that it's really important um, to be able to share data in a safe way that protects patients. But if you are ordering a test online, Mm. There are concerns about what that company is doing with your data. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, is this going to be one of the real hot potatoes in the next kind of, you know, 10, 20 years as this genetics testing becomes more and more prevalent? Is is the ethics behind this and, and access to the data and, you know, whether... Is, is that something that you guys are thinking of and have ethics teams and things behind at the moment? Very much so. Yeah, yeah that's something that we're mm. very mindful of. And also, um, I should point out that when we offer um, patients this whole exome testing, we target the analysis to genes associated with the patient's condition. So we're not yeah. looking at all of the genes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and therefore, yeah. if there are genes that cause conditions, for example, the BRCA1 gene that causes an increased risk of breast or ovarian cancer, that's not something that we want to find in a child. Um, and those genes are masked, so they're not analysed. Mm. Um, so I guess that we have to be really careful about what patients are consenting for and what we're doing. Yeah, I think too, the interpretation is everything. And I mean, even if you grab your standard series of blood tests and you start looking through them yourself mm. and you think, oh, something's slightly, you know, people start freaking. But, but, you know, without a proper clinical, clinical evaluation of what that means, as you say, relative to your condition at that time, it really is information that can, you know, drive you in the wrong direction and can be in, inappropriate. So that's right. Yeah, it's important that you guys are doing that and hopefully, um, you know, we were just talking about uh, a couple of weeks back about some of the amazing stem cell clinics that have popped up in Australia. I mean, this is another one of these games where if there's money to be made, someone's going to try and make it off people. And I think um, having these organisations where we can get the right messages out are very important. Ellie, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and good luck with the Genomics Alliance. Thank you very much. Ellie Lynch is the Clinical Program Manager of the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance and doing some interesting work there on new ways to look at disease. You're listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3 to Blah. We're going to play you some music and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk about climate. We're going to let uh, Dr. Ailey off her lead let for a little bit. Let me loose. Go nuts. <laughs> she, she will, she'll be feisty, folks, so you might want to sit down. 3 triple. Uh, there you go. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. If you're wondering what tracks we've played today, that one was Seeker Lover Keeper with Light All My Lights. Before that was Nathan Flint with Stay Here. And the first one was Anna Cordell with Michael. Now, Dr. Ailey, it's been storming in Adelaide. It has been storming <coughs> in Adelaide. There was a, uh, a big, what we would call... In tech-speak mid-latitude cyclone, it's a big storm. It um, came through Friday, I think, was building over yeah, yeah. the course of the week, came through Friday, and, of course, South Australia lost their power. Um, South Australia's power is, is run from both renewable energy and also with a link to here in Victoria. And, unfortunately, for those South Australian uh, friends of ours, two tornadoes uh, knocked out some of the big transmission towers right? near the border. Tornadoes? I, yeah, tornadoes, I, didn't, I didn't actually know what it was, but yeah, it was Yeah, tornadoes. yeah, no, they were tornadoes. So it's un, it's funny, actually. People don't think we'd get tornadoes no, in this do. country, yeah. but we, we get a lot of them, actually. Just not as strong as they usually are in the United States. But obviously mm. these ones were, were strong enough because they knocked out transmission towers. So, um, of course, you know, that plunged the state into to no electricity. There's been lots of, you know, talk with political parties mm. lately and, and, you know, renewable energy and climate change and was this storm climate change and all that kind of stuff. So 
Thought we'd set the record straight today. Can we start with the renewable energy line? I mean, I'm sorry, but I haven't read the articles, but I have been unable to theoretically in my mind Mm. make the link between how renewable energy, a big storm, and then power loss were connected. So I think I think <laughs> I'm trying. I am trying to take the argument of, of 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 something that I just I just think is an extreme weather event caused, caused this outage. Yeah, okay. It wasn't yeah. renewable energy. I mean, I think the argument, if you take steps down the line, is that well. Um, the reliance of the baseload power on Victoria, you know, if, if you've only got that one source of baseload power and then there were all these knock-on effects in the other systems, then that overloaded the system because the renewable energy, I don't know. But the point is, I think you'd have that anyway, even mm. the baseload power. Like, I, I don't understand how, if it knocks it out, it knocks it out. It's going to have cascading effects through the rest of the system yeah. anyway, regardless of yeah, whether yeah, it's yeah, renewable yeah. or not. Yeah, so yeah. I think I think there's a lot of um, experts coming out who really have no idea what the federal government is talking about in that respect. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's they're, they're kind of looking into it and, and going to take a few days. But I think ultimately all the emergency services people um, have said, look, this was extreme weather. It happens, mm. right? Um, but there have been a few suggestions that, you know, and of course questions always are raised when these kinds of things happen. Oh, well, is this climate change? And I'd I think like more than to, suggestions. I mean, there's yeah. quite a few people who flat out say, told you. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, right. Now, I, so so this is why I wanted you to talk about this because yeah. to me, yeah. if if the link is there yep. and it's clear, yep. then absolutely it should be promoted mm-hmm. that this is happening. Yep. If the link is not there and yep. this is just people jumping on an ice cream bandwagon, yep. then they're doing more damage than good and yep. frankly they should shut up. Yeah, well, Sorry, quite, I, I, quite, quite, quite frankly, quite firm about this. they have a double scoop ice cream with uh, chocolate really? fudge and <laughs> oh. lots of sprinkles because this is not climate change well if if there is a signal we can't detect it i mean this is storms like this happen right okay storms like this happen this is i think on the news they said it was a one in 50 year storm these things are rare occurrences but they happen i don't know exactly when the last one was i mean we get storms like this every year maybe not this severe um but these kind of we've actually had probably oh gosh eight to ten of these going through the southeastern states this year this this particular one just happened to be more severe Mm, um i know there was another huge one in in the 1930s i think it was 1934 that that ripped through um Victoria and, you know, 3,000 people were evacuated and I think about eight people lost their lives or something. So these storms do happen from time to time. And the, the thing with, with attributing particular extreme weather events to climate change, I mean, this is, this is a real hot potato because people, every time an extreme weather event happens, they say, oh, is it climate change, is it climate change, is it climate change? Well, first off, that's probably the wrong question to ask. I mean, climate is basically the statistics of weather, right? Mm -hmm. It's a weather event versus climate. Climate is kind of a broad trend Mm. change, right? So we can't attribute a single weather event to climate change. We just can't. Moreover, climate change or not, it's not that black and white. Mm. I mean, you know, there's lots of things Mm. that that happen in the climate system. They, They are not either climate change or they're not. Sometimes there's probably a bit of both. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is, I mean, looking at the actual evidence for for things like storms of this nature, yes, there is evidence that into the future and and out towards the end of the 21st century, some of the climate models say things like extreme rainfall are likely to increase, but there's still a lot of uncertainty in that. And what we're seeing right now um, 
I mean, yeah, there's just no evidence for it. And mm. in, in fact, a lot of the literature that's out recently shows that storminess has declined in right. southern Australia, not increased. Right. So I, I was a little bit frustrated when I heard a few of the political pundits and, and others jumping about on the, on the television yesterday saying, oh, this is evidence of climate change, because... Sorry, no, it's not. So, so let's. Um, I mean, because the the data with regards to the changing temperature, we've all many of us have probably seen yeah, that spiral graph, and absolutely. it's absolutely clear. Absolutely. Um, there's another one out now. If you haven't seen it, folks, have a look on carbon dioxide yeah, levels, for sure. which is even you know, in a for way sure. it's even more convincing. Uh, but give us some examples, Ailey, of where we are seeing that link, where there is you know. Item A is yep. caused by item, you know, right. item B. I mean, wh- wh- where are we seeing that? Okay, so the thing with with climate change and, and changes in our in our regional climates or global mm. climates, climate change <clears throat> and the influence of climate change is a lot more certain, and we are absolutely unequivocally sure, as sure as we are about gravity, all that kind of stuff, um, about global temperatures, even continental scale temperatures and regional temperatures, heat waves, anything to do with temperature. We're good. Some of the things to do with rainfall are a lot more uncertain. On a global scale, it's more certain. Again, as you get into those small, small regional areas, particularly southeastern Australia, Melbourne, Adelaide, things become a lot more uncertain. So temperature changes are much more certain Mm -hmm. than, uh, say, rainfall, for example. Sea level rise is another certain one. Okay. We're really, you know, so if if climate change had any influence on this, on the impacts from this storm that hit Adelaide, it would be with something like sea level rise, for okay. example, yep. because we know the sea level has risen around the Australian continent, just like it's, it's risen around the world. Associated with these storms, we get what we call these storm surges. So we get the low pressure and the high winds pushing mm. uh, ocean water in towards the shore. And of course, if you've got high sea levels, you're going to get more of an impact, right? Yep. So absolutely, those kinds of things can have an effect. But things like wind and rain and the intensity of the storm itself, we just we really can't say much at all. Mm. I mean, presumably, if you got to a point where we went from having, on average, two or three of these a year yep. to gradually getting to the point where there was thirty-five of Absolutely. them a year, then, then you'd be able to sort of Absolutely. map that. I Absolutely. mean, that, that seems be, to me like yes, the sort of thing you could for do. For sure, for sure, we'd be able to map that. We'd be able to look at the reasons behind it mm. and, and work out whether or not that change was due to, to anthropogenic or human-induced. Yeah. Climate change, for sure. But, I mean, the reality is with things like storm and rainfall events and droughts, we just don't see those mm. kinds of signals. Mm. And there's a lot of a lot of noise. There's a lot of, you know, lumps and bumps from year to year and decade to decade in rainfall and storms and stuff that happen. And, in fact, as I said before, the, the last study I've seen on, on storms like this in southern Australia, granted it was probably published mm. about five years ago now, but um, it actually showed that there'd been a, a significant, statistically significant decline yeah, in storminess yeah. in southern Australia, rather than an increase. So, look, I think I think the 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 short answer is these things happen. Yeah. So 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 let me let me try and pull this down into a nutshell yeah. in, in a way to describe this. I mean, if we if we think of all those sort of micro weather events like the storm in Adelaide and so yeah. forth across the globe, yeah. at any given time, that presumably is a function of the climate of the Earth at that time. Correct. If we change the climate over, say, the next 20 years, yep. then what we will see in terms of those micro-events will be then a function of the changed climate. Correct. So you, you should therefore assume that things will be different. Yes. But to take one micro-event yes. and say this is an indicator of climate yes. would be kind of like taking one grain of sand and saying, I'll paint you the whole beach. Correct. Right. That's exactly right. So you need to look for, you know, someone dumping mm. a truckload of sand up the rest of the beach yeah. and, you know, to yeah. use yeah, that yeah, analogy. Yeah. So, it's, so it's about it's about the aggregate, not 
and 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 as Dr. Shane just said, you know, if you get thirty five of these storms in one year, and and yeah. that happens for the next ten years, you might go, oh, geez, yeah. okay, yeah. something's going on. But one storm that happens every fifty years hasn't happened, yeah. you know, for about fifty years yeah, or and more. We're not, and we're not, we're absolutely not saying that a changing climate won't affect the micro events. No, of course. What not. we're saying is individual micro events can't yeah. be used absolutely. as a predictor absolutely. of climate overall, and also yeah. that the evidence is still like. Sorry, but this is science. The yeah. evidence is still unclear Building. for things yeah. like storms and droughts, and mm. and this is what we're working on, trying to trying to pull this out. So, Jeez, glad we got that off our chest. Give me that windy it is outside. It is, um, which is not an indicator of no, climate change, no, no, folks. No. Don't, it's you know, an indicator it's a, that a cold front's about to hit Melbourne. Yeah, so, so um, <laughs> batten down the hatches, get your washing right. off the line, or you know, do it. No, it's a great day do. for washing. Just get, make sure you get, get your washing in by about three or four pm. That's right. That's right. Dr. Ailey, thanks so much for that. It's good to throw some cold water on this, I think, every now and then. And it's, you know, we're absolutely in the right camp yep. on this show. This is one of the reasons why we got you on, but we don't want to add to the bullshit. Correct. Yeah, indeed. Dr. Catherine. Thanks, Dr. Shane. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's been an eventful morning. It yeah. has. It's been, oh, yeah. really been fun. Really um, folks, we're going to have to hand over now to the team from Eat It. I know... Uh, that Cam is over there. He's ready to go, although he did tell me that he uh, had a bit of trouble with daylight saving, so <laughs> I'm not sure if he's uh, fully prepared, but he, he's awake and he's in the studio. He's ready to go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to everyone for listening to us today. Um, we will have more science for you next week, and thanks again for supporting Triple R throughout the Radiothon, which uh, the pay update uh, finished uh, during the week. Until next week, have a great Sunday and stay safe. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.